So the World Cup is over and we're left with no football for a couple of weeks. But fear not, the Liver Birds are back with a second edition of the podcast. Episode two of the Liver Birds podcast. Joining me again this evening are Enzo, Ray, and our favourite Mancunian Nina. So first things first. So yesterday saw the end of the football that we've all been staying up late and watching until God knows what time. So time to catch up on some sleep, I'd say. Um, so we're going to talk about the result of last night: Germany winning the World Cup. What does everyone think about that? Ray, I'm going to come to you first. How do you feel about Germany winning that that match? Do you think they were deserved winners? Yes, I do. Um, I, I didn't think that Argentina were worthy finalists, let alone potential World Cup winners. And I think after Germany's demolition of Brazil in the semi-final, a lot of people were willing the Germans to win. Um, quite aside from the fact that my partner's half German <laughs> and um, the the other fact that all of my colleagues were supporting Argentina, particularly the colleague who's married to an Argentinian, um, it, it's pleased the perverse side of my character to be supporting Germany last night and to see them win. I think they played the better football. I think they had the better tactics. And as I said earlier, I think they're they're definitely the deserved winners. Yeah, don't you think they were just like very clinical in the way they were delivering their football? And I think they were, for me as well, the only team that were consistent all the way through, not relying on just one player or a few moments of brilliance, but I just felt they were consistent throughout the whole tournament. And that was obviously evident at that thrashing of Brazil. And I think that was yeah. after that, I kind of thought, yeah, I think Germany are going to do this, definitely. I think in all of their games, Germany really showed their clinical efficiency mm. in the passes that they made, the goals that they scored and their tactics. They never rested on just one goal. They were constantly going for a second goal, a third goal, or as in the game against Brazil, a sixth and a seventh, just because they could. Um, I didn't see them park the bus. I didn't see them become complacent. They just seems a lot hungrier. If you compare them with the world, if you compare German performances with the Dutch performances, for instance, Holland were really effective as well, but they really depended on Robin. I find that they rely I found that they relied a bit too much on Robin anyway. Not just his his skill as a footballer, but possibly his skill as a theatrical actor. But I think Germany were the most consistent side. And while in some games, they may not have been setting off fireworks. They may have been a little bit dull. Certainly, as soon as they got to the knockout stages, and certainly, again, the semi-final against Brazil, they just pulled out all of the stops because I think their belief was such that they were like, right, we can do this now. We can beat Brazil. And if we get Brazil out of the way, then it's ours. Yeah, definitely. So, definitely. I agree with you there. 
I think, again, like going back to what you said about them being so clinical and hungry for the win, that was evident from when they actually conceded that first goal. New Year's reaction, that just told you everything that you needed to know about Germany, how they were still going for it and how, how pissed off he was that that goal went in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they were all really focused and all really driven. A few comments, and there may be some doubts as to Ozil's performance in some of the games. I found that he may have been their weak link. I didn't find him as committed as the others. But as a team performance, they were certainly the best. Yep. Okay. All right. Coming to you, Nina. I know you're um, you're quite keen on following German football as it is. So you must have been happy that Germany won yesterday. Well, yeah, and it's got nothing to do with the fact that I've just won a pair of Jimmy Choo's, but that's a personal joke. Um, <laughs> I think the one thing that I absolutely loved and marvelled about the Germans' whole campaign as a whole were they were a team. You look at, say, the Dutch, Robin, their star man. England for us was probably Rooney. And I would probably go on to say Italy had Pirlo, uh, Uruguay had Suarez. Um, Portugal, Ronaldo, Messi, Argentina, one-man team sort of substance doesn't win you the World Cup. Going back to previous years, Italy back in 2006, Lippi had them unified and they played some beautiful football and, and they won it. And it was it was fabulous. Again, Spain, uh, the previous World Cup in South Africa back in 2010, team spirit, unified team, result won won the World Cup and I think it was pretty similar of the Germans and it was fabulous I think as a whole they were phenomenal I think Thomas Muller is like the most amazing player and he just sort of picked up from where he left off from the previous World Cup and you know to get five um, I think he got five goals yes he got five goals um, as a midfielder I hate to sound, uh, to bring up cliches, but it was very much German efficiency and Joachim Lowe was just the coach to sort of bring all the players from, be it Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund and of course Arsenal players as well. It's just been fabulous and I'm just really thrilled for them. I think that that collective, them collective players deserved a World Cup victory and I think it was vindication on German football. Again, again, I think, you know, they were outstanding throughout. And although, like, a lot of people have described this World Cup as, you know, one of the best World Cups we've had, I think throughout all the underdog performances that we've seen and the other goals that we've seen, um, Germany did ultimately stand out and, again, were deserved winners. Enzo, coming to you, I mean, your your team, Italy, didn't really do much better than England, did they? But after they not, got knocked out, who who stood out for you and um, what were your best moments of this World Cup? Kick a girl while she's down, Kosha, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I'm not the biggest German fan, being the Italiano in the group. Uh, if I'm completely honest with you, I wasn't rooting for them yesterday whatsoever, but... They wholeheartedly deserved the World Cup. This was the German World Cup. I believe that through and through. I'll probably cry into my pillow for even saying that today because I hate Germany. Um, but it's their performances from the very first game against uh, Portugal all the way through to the final, 
each team that they faced, they really showed up against them, really showed them what they're made of, individuals as a team. You know, going back to what Nina said, a team that is built around one individual, it's not going to win you the World Cup. It is literally when you're unified, you come in as one, you come in as a team. That is what wins you the trophies. And that goes across all football arenas in the world, not just the world. I think from all of our point of view, I mean, we've all grown up over the last however many years old we all are, which I won't reveal. And we've seen Argentina and Brazil always taking the lead, always sort of, you know, really showing us the beautiful game, showing us what, what makes football just the greatest, most enjoyable sport to watch. And in this World Cup, I'm, I'm so disappointed that Brazil just, they just didn't match up to what I thought they would match up to. In Argentina were possibly the most mediocre team that I, you know, watched playing. And they actually gave us some of the most boring games to watch throughout the World Cup. And you would never think four weeks ago that you would actually be sitting there saying something along those lines that Argentina bored the shit out of you. Um, even in the actual final, apart from the odd performance, uh, Mascherano was great. Uh, I didn't really think much of Messi. Sorry to say, he is a great player. I don't really think he did the best that he could have done. Maybe the team's to blame for that as well. But the Germans, absolute deserved win. They, it was their World Cup. It, it was written. It was going to be theirs. And wholeheartedly, they deserved it. Fucking hate them for getting four and matching up with Italy. Absolutely hate them for that. And someone somewhere has got to really whip Italy into shape and get the fifth one in. In, a, in four years' time, but well done, Germany. Great performance. Yeah, they were, they were very fantastic. Ray, I think you had a point to make on uh, Germany. Um, just to pick up what Nina said about team unity, one of the deficiencies that the German performance shows up in other teams is this inability on the part of managers, particularly the England manager, to overcome the club divisions between the different players. Now, I don't know whether this is because of personal clashes or personal grudges because of events in the Premier League. I don't know. But England, for instance, this is just my example, do not work as a unit because there are still those club lines between the different players. And maybe Maybe it's a, a mentality that's drummed into them at club level, that it's club first and country second. But until England can function as a unit and until the players can overcome their personal divisions and their, their personal loyalties, England aren't going to succeed in anything because they haven't got that uni, they, the unity. They don't work as a unit. You saw it in, in the England games where the Liverpool players were very good at passing to each other, but passing to anyone who wasn't already within the Liverpool unit, it just it fell apart. So this is something that the FA and Roy Hodgson, seeing as he's still in a job, um, will have to work at very, very hard. And a lot of teams, a lot of national teams are going to have to look at Germany and build their own structures on the German model. The Spanish model's dead. We saw that. So it will it will have to be the German model now. And 
I think a lot of clubs and a lot of national teams will be looking to Germany now and saying, well, how are they doing things differently? Why is it working for them? And until other teams can work the same way as the German team did, it's just, it's not going to happen. And Germany are going to dominate for a long time. They have a very young squad and they work well together. So the way Spain have dominated world football for the last six or eight years, I expect Germany to do exactly the same thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, right? Um, because you can see exactly the foundations there with the young players. Um, looking at England, they have the players, but they don't have the team. And that's exactly what you can see from Germany, them playing as the team together. So, yeah, that's a good point you made there about the Liverpool players just passing to each other. Um, for me, uh, I just wanted to, like, aside from Germany, just wanted to say how, um, going back to Enzo's point on how Brazil and Argentina, like, you know, they they didn't really turn up. Brazil especially, in their home country, the stage was set. And to be honest, it's kind of a disappointment that they didn't. For me, um, I just, I can't like Brazil. There's too many Chelsea players playing for them. That's my reason. I'm going to say it. It's probably not the greatest reason, but but that's it. I just can't, can't hate that. Um, not only that, but this time, they just did not look great. And apart from Neymar... Bar Neymar, ne- take Neymar out of the equation and they completely fell apart. They have David Luiz captaining them that game because um, Thiago Silva was out as well against Germany and they just crumbled, crumbled. And we all know like what that reminded us of. That was the, you know, Liverpool Arsenal all over again. And I know we've got our little, um, we messaged, we all messaged each other saying that um, as well. And obviously we keep being reminded of it with that lovely BT Sport advert. So, you know, that's great going as well. Um, but aside from aside from um, that, I mean, I quite enjoyed watching Chile play. I think their style of football as well, it, it reminded me of Liverpool in some ways because it's like counter-attacking fast football. Um, so they were a team that I, I was watching. And again, James Rodriguez really stood out for me. Or James, should we say. James, it's James Rodriguez. James, James Rodriguez. Boy. It's like Seba- it's like Sebastian Coates, who's got this Scottish surname that's just Coates. Coates but, but no, Coates. It's, it's Coates. It sounds more exotic, but it it's does, just Coates. It? it does. But you know what? I, I actually read in the paper that James Rodriguez is actually named after James Bond, and that, that that's why his mum called him James. I read that in the paper. Don't know how true it is, but yeah, that's what I read, and I thought that was pretty funny. But yeah, it's like that goodness gracious me sketch, isn't it? Where they're all at the English it's restaurant going, James, James. <laughs> Exactly. Shit on the side. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Oh dear. Well, Hamez James. Well, you know, he really stood out for me as well. I think he he was he was class. That um that free kick he took, or free no not free kick. Sorry, um the volley that he had, very similar to um, Maxi Rodriguez in the last World Cup. Was it? That was that was amazing. That strike. Um. So I'm just going to go around you guys and just see like who else stood out for you apart from Germany. I'll go to uh, Nina first. I was quite impressed with Algeria. I thought they were probably the most improved team from last World Cup in the sense that, you know, they played some lovely football. Uh, They gave a gutsy performance against Germany. And I just love that all the whole overall underdog sort of fairy tale sort of story and sort of getting out of the group and you know being there I, I was also and this might pain a few England fans but Costa Rica were branded as the whipping boys of our group and 
not only did they get out of the group, but they topped it and got into the quarterfinals and took Holland all the way to penalties. I mean, kudos to them. You know, it's they, yeah, they were fantastic, weren't they? Costa Rica, really great. Absolutely, and I think they shocked a lot of people. And I think the World Cup is all about. Well, this World Cup in particular, I mean, I think you couldn't really pitch a winner in most of the games. I thought Colombia as a whole were fantastic. I thought they absolutely dismantled Uruguay, albeit a very weakened Uruguay side without Luis Suarez, obviously. Um, Again, uh, like you say, Chile, I mean, played beautiful football and I actually fell in love with their fans. They had so much passion. They were like the best fans, you know, there. They were fabulous absolutely amazing so there were a few teams that I was really quite impressed with great um, Enzo what about you like aside from Italy of course um best players or moments of the World Cup oh there's quite a few I think I'm total agreement with Nina Algeria now today of all days ladies and gents I act my little department at work won the best dress department and we were group H so thank you Algeria Thank you very much for that. Um, so I Algeria with a group, I sort of, my, my underdog group that I sort of wanted to follow. And they were absolutely amazing. And I remember when they were sort of running circles and rings around England, I think it was in 2010. And I remember watching and thinking, Jesus Christ, these guys are giving England the home of the Premier League a run for their money. So you could sort of see even back then that they were going to improve and came back and they were absolutely awesome I'd love to see them get even further in the next World Cup um, aside from them Mexico oh goosebumps all over that goalkeeper of theirs with his really beautiful oh yeah he's yeah, amazing be- that beautiful mane of whizzy, fizzy whizzy wild hair uh, his saves and even geez I can't even believe I'm going to say this but Tim Howard and I hate this guy so so much oh but if anyone remembers e honda from street fighter with those ridiculous <laughs> slappings yes he was literally he was e honda he was the e honda of the, he was e howard of the world cup he was slapping those goals uh, well potential goals away he was absolutely bloody awesome will he be the same in the premier league you never know but i mean on an international stage it was just oh it was lovely and that's the best thing about the World Cup. So, Ray, um, was there any other performances, in either individual or teams, that you feel will be a standout moment of this World Cup? I'm not sure I have a huge amount to add to what the girls have said. I mean, my personal approach to the World Cup this year was as soon as there was an underdog team against one of the big teams, I supported the underdog just because we were almost guaranteed to see much better, much more lively football from the underdog teams than we were from the more complacent, bigger, in inverted commas, teams. I really enjoyed watching Mexico. I really enjoyed Ochoa's performances because he was just on fire. Every game he was on point and he made some fantastic saves, really fantastic saves. And I really enjoyed Mexico's style of football and just their energy. They just went at it. And it was lovely to see that, to see that throwing of caution to the wind to go, right, fuck it, we're just going to go out there and play and we're going to do our best. And often their best was far better than the opponent's, t- the opponent's football. So that was fantastic to watch. I loved watching Costa Rica as well. Mm. That was really, really enjoyable. I found the bigger teams 
a little bit lazy. I don't know why that is. I think there was a certain amount of arrogance in thinking that they were coming up against minnows and necessarily they were going to win. And seeing them being given a really hard time by these smaller teams was fantastic. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in subsequent World Cups because I think there are lots of reasons for the smaller countries to be very, very cheerful now and for them to go into the next international tournaments thinking, we don't need to be intimidated by these guys, see what we did four years ago. It's going to be, the next World Cup's going to be amazing. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. You know, in some respects, it's almost as if um, Colombia and Mexico replaced what um, Brazil and Argentina should have been playing like, is what oh, I... Oh, absolutely. So absolutely, yeah. they were much more entertaining to watch. And yeah, agreed, Argentina in some games were absolutely dire to watch. And it's just like, they're just waiting for that moment of brilliance from Messi to save the day again. And yesterday it didn't happen. Okay, I was rooting for Argentina yesterday because they were my sweepstake team. But other than that, they, were, you know, they weren't very convincing at all. Um, Mascherano had a standout performance. But yeah, like other than that, like, I, I just think the South America, if, if we were to say South American football for this World Cup, I think definitely Mexico and Chile and Colombia as well. I think it, coming back to the uh, what you said about Argentina, which I now completely agree with you, I think even if you factor out the point that the Argentina-Holland game came hot on the heels of this amazing Germany-Brazil game, yeah. Argentina-Holland was just a war of attrition. They were just grinding out, grinding out, grinding out and hoping it would get to penalties, certainly from Argentina this perspective I didn't see them try very hard until quite late on in the second half and I got very very bored and that hardly ever happens the Argentina Holland game was the most boring game of the tournament for me dreadful I agree I think really, I think really I fell asleep for part of it I'm not yeah I think I actually did fall asleep so I agree with you there um there's one team that we haven't mentioned that I feel should get a uh, shout out and Nina I'm sorry but um I have to say Ghana they played incredibly well to hold Germany to a draw. Coming to you, Nina, again, so did USA as well. Um, so they did really well as well to keep them to a draw. And I agree, like you, like coming back to um, what Enzo said about Tim Howard, um, I think he was much like a massive credit to the US team. I think even Barack Obama even phoned him up and like congratulated him and stuff. So like it was, it was really nice to see the Americans getting further than England in some ways because you know they've traditionally you know they've got their soccer and um, they're not really um, they, they see it as like a secondary sport like and England is supposed to be better at football but you know absolutely and can I just say um, the USA game versus Belgium for me was the game of the tournament it, it had everything it was end-to-end -end. it was it was quite nice seeing Germany. I mean, it was quite nice seeing USA play so well and with some passion. And, you know, this, Jürgen Klinsmann, sorry to bring up a German again, uh, seems to be the right man. And he's sort of quite astute. And he's got these young players who actually want to play. And a lot of them do play in Bundesliga. So it is quite liberating and it is quite refreshing. But going back to a German player, I think a special shout out to Miroslav Klose for... I think 
being the all-time leading goal scorer at World Cups, it's it's great to see veterans do well at 36. He's still bagging in the goals, showing the minnows how it's done. It's it's fabulous. And this is a slightly girly little fangirl moment, but I feel the need to shout out Uruguay for wearing, and I quote, the sluttiest football shirts that we <laughs> saw. Oh my God, left nothing to the imagination. I did not blink when they played. And also... It's got to be said they had the best cheekbones in football as well. Martin Caceres, oh my God, any day. I agree with you about the shirts. It's kind of like the old it- Italian shirts, to be honest. You know, with Kappa tight-fitted ones, but yeah. Or the Vinci <laughs> Drama ones as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. I'm sure Enzo knows about that one, of course. Anything <laughs> that's tight and Italian. <laughs> my speciality, what can I say? Um, I think it's only fair for me to say I've not really mentioned it because they didn't do very well but um, I'm actually my second team is actually Spain so I was a bit heartbroken after that first game and uh, kind of didn't mention to anyone that you know I have been like a Spain supporter after England I just yeah just thought I'd keep that one really quiet but um, (laughs) yeah I think we were all Spain supporters for a little bit because um there were so many ties between the Spanish national Liverpool, squad and Liverpool yeah, squad. Yeah, I agree. So, um, you know, we, we all kind of went a bit gaga. Yeah, since, I don't know, since I've been young, I've always um, liked Real Madrid. So I think my, and, and like when Raul was playing. So uh, since then, it was always me being, following Spain after England. But yeah, it's kind of a, it is kind of a shame to see that happen. But I guess, you know, there, there's always cycles in football. We've seen it happen so many times. So, yeah. Um, Nina, you've got something to say. Yeah, I was really um, disappointed with Spain myself. I think we expected them to do a lot better. I think they were a lot of people's tournament favourites as well, considering the dominance in the two European um, sort of championships and the World Cup. Uh, yeah, Tiki Taka did. It, 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 became, it, came, it became unravelled. Uh, defensively they were poor I thought they were lacking the ex- the the experience and also the footballing brain of um, Carlos Puyol who seems to might he might not have the legs but he can certainly orchestrate a back four and I think the likes of Ramos and uh, PK just looked out of their depth without a natural leader Ica Casillas um, just showed to the world that he is pretty much a camera safe keeper. I've always said as much. I feel awful saying it, but it's true. And yeah, he flapped his hands a fair bit. But again, going back to Spain, they've just followed the tradition of um, your previous World Cup winners. I mean, France 98 winners back in um, back in 2002 failed to get out of the group stages. Italy back in 2006 failed to get out of the group stages in 2010. So it is a pretty much a deja vu sort of scenario with um, teams sort of dominating, winning a World Cup and then failing to sort of get out of the, the group stages for the next World Cup. So... Let's just hope Germany don't follow suit. Yeah, uh, I, I. well, let's see what happens there. I'm sure we'll soon find out. But I think, you know, there's big things happening for German football at the moment. Enzo, sorry, you had something you wanted to say. Oh, all I was going to say is I refuse to agree with the everyone rooted for um, Spain at some point. I hate them. I seem to hate a lot of teams, to be fair. I did not root for them. I was very, very happy they got knocked out. The only... The only thing that I was a little bit disappointed in is it wasn't the nicest thing to see um, some of the, the veteran players 
to be knocked out in their final World Cup. So saying goodbye to them in that way was a little bit heartbreaking for some. Just not yeah, it's, 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 it's like going out, going out on a damper <laughs> where you want to go out on a high. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I agree with you there. Um, before we move on to um, things we didn't like about the World Cup, I do need to give a shout out to one England player in particular. And that's our very own Raheem Sterling. He was completely the standout player for me for England. Um, I had people come up to me and say, oh, um, that Sterling's looking pretty good, isn't he? And, you know, I felt proud to say that, yeah, he's part of our team and he's only 19 years old. I'm going to keep saying this. He's going to get so much better and I'm so excited to see him play more. Just had to get that point in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, there were... Coming to things that weren't so great about this World Cup, um, there were some, you know, debatable refereeing decisions, I would say. Um, and I think it is something that we, we as us, us, us girls, have um, discussed quite a bit. So, Ray, coming to you, I know we, we've spoken about when Brazil were playing, um, how we felt the referees were doing. So, do you want to... Um, let the world yeah. know how you feel about Brazil. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Um, my view is that 85% of the refereeing at the World Cup was fucking shit. Yeah, I agree. I felt like a lot of the referees had been taken aside by FIFA and said, um, you know, Brazil are playing today. If you see any stray elbows, headbutts, trips, kicks, gouges, anything untowards, just turn a blind eye to it because it's Brazil. Now, I felt that there were wild, wild double standards at play a lot of the time. Um, without going back into the Suarez thing, I felt that there were a number of incidents of elbows making contact and some really nasty tackles and fouls that just weren't investigated when really they ought to have been. If you're going to kick up a stink about one particular thing, kick up a stink about every serious incident and investigate them properly. That's one. Now, in terms of the standards of refereeing, my personal philosophy when it comes to international refereeing is that um, Kalina needs to open a refereeing school and every single FIFA-accredited referee needs to be trained by Pierluigi Colina. End of. He was and still is the best referee I've ever seen. Takes no shit from anybody. He is the boss. He knows the rules. He applies them. End of. And that's how referees should be. They shouldn't be dithering. They shouldn't be referring constantly to the linesmen. Yes, the linesmen have things to add because they have a different perspective from where they are and the fourth official as well. But no amount of goal line technology and whatever else you want to throw at it is going to make up for flagrant inconsistencies between one between different referees and refereeing standards around the world. Either they sort that out or they change the criteria by which they recruit the referees because I was fucking appalled. I really was. It was just mental. I could have refereed a lot of those and I don't know the bloody rule book. So anyway, yes, that's how I felt about the refereeing. And breathe. I, uh, I completely agree with you. I mean, there was one, I can't remember which game it was, um, one of the Brazil games, um, I was oh, just so frustrating to watch. And I was just like, what the fuck is going on here? It's just, you know, so many fouls, not a single yellow card. I think it was 
that that particular game had the most fouls without yellow cards. I just couldn't, I could not believe what was what I was seeing, and I was just like, oh, um, I f- it just destroys the game. And I, I, I completely agree with you, right? Um, I did feel like they were kind of scared that you know it's it's in it's like home home country immunity, so to speak. In some in some cases, I felt that oh, they're the home nation, they're you know they're Brazil. We can't say anything to them, and that's why like you would, I I wasn't happy that they won, and I just felt you know they, their tactic. It, oh, it was um Colombia. That's it. They um literally their tactic of just you know go and pick on Hammers. It just it's just ridiculous. Seriously, I just it just pissed me right off. Well, it was public tactics, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. The more desperate you get, let's just go and kick lumps out of the best player on the pitch because he's making us look bad, right? Well, no, buck up your ideas and play some decent football. Don't start kicking lumps out of people and don't count on the fact that the referee is just going to ignore all of the shit, shitty stunts that you're p- pulling on the pitch. It's just, it's just not on. And the thing is that we know... FIFA being FIFA, absolute fuck all will be done about this. They think they've done their job. They've made the millions of dollars that they wanted to make out of the World Cup. That's it. They don't want to do anything more about it and they won't do anything more about it. So we will continue seeing increasingly desperate Brazilian sides just going for it and trying to, you know, break people's legs and going, what, what? I didn't touch him. I didn't touch him while theatrically diving in the box and then wondering why they don't get a penalty. So there needs to be a real reassessment of how FIFA referees are A, recruited, B, accredited, and what kind of standards need to be applied here. You cannot have someone like Howard Webb being one of the world's leading referees. When you see the kind of referees that were fielded by other members of uh, other member state countries of FIFA, then yeah, someone like Howard Webb is going to be a leading referee, but he's still not Pierluigi Colina. Yeah, I agree with you. And like, to be honest, the game misses Pierluigi Colina. Um, Again, he is one of those referees that we all respect. And I think players respect as well. And again, like you said, he doesn't take any shit from anybody else. Enzo, you must be happy that we finally praised an Italian. So come thanks to you. The, yeah, thanks a lot for that. <laughs> Polina, it was the eyes. The eyes, they, they make you shudder. I, I think so too. It's like, you know, you know, like you've done something wrong when you get those eyes. It's it's those kind of eyes, I think. Yeah, when you're five and your mum's on the other side of the soup and exactly. you accidentally, you know, you pick up a bag of sweets you're not meant to and you can see those eyes staring and burning holes in Piercing eyes, oh, exactly. Yeah, it's them. I think. I think we need to find out if Colina's on Twitter first and foremost. Um, then we can hound him. I think we should uh, yeah. approach him, and this could be a really good business idea potentially. We, has he got kids? Are they all bald? Do they? Uh, I, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. We'll have to find out for you and find out if they're single too. You know, for you. <laughs> oh no 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 no. Oh, maybe. Hmm, I'm thinking <laughs> about it. No. <laughs> no. I think no. I think we no, all know I mean, that you're okay with Cannavaro, and that's as far as you're going to go, really, isn't it? Cannavaro is a different story when it comes to Italians, hey. Anyway, we digress. <laughs> we digress a lot. No, but yeah. What we were talking about uh, with the bad moments of the World Cup or the worst moments. How do you think like the standard refereeing went at this World Cup? You know, in all fairness. As each World Cup or even Euro goes by, it just gets shitter and shitter, really. It's just declining. It's getting worse and worse. It's almost like we're sort of finding temps 
from somewhere. Like we phoned up some sort of temping agency and said, you know, can we get us a couple of referees in this game, please? Maybe a couple of linesmen who can't even hold a flag straight. It's one of those, it's almost, it's like the standard of refereeing isn't actually, one standard isn't being used almost. It's almost like they've all got the, I, I know each country has their own respective league. They've probably got their own ways of doing things. But when it comes to the World Cup, it, it needs to be completely the same above all teams in you know for all nationalities of referees it needs to be the same and consistent all the way through and like ray said totally agree every time brazil were playing it it was like they were they were bribed or something i mean the reason why luis suarez has got this ban is not because he bit someone it's because he's uruguayan and not brazilian because if he chomped a few chunks out of someone wearing a brazil shirt it probably would have got couple of yellow cards maybe here and there I don't think he would have been banned that long but I mean yeah the referees even the linesmen everything absolutely everything even the commentary I I mean I could the list is endless I could just go on commentary is a whole other matter we could we could have a whole (laughs) point just about the commentary of the world cup and how shit it has been (laughs) anyway (laughs) carry on I just think it's one of those things we'll it all football fans worldwide will always hate the referees. It's something we can't help. It's something we cannot change. We just have to sit here and watch them make the shittest and dumbest and most blindest decisions you'll ever see. And then just watch your team suffer as a result. And But you move on. You get to the next game. You forget about what happened in the previous game. It's just a, just a fact of life, really, I suppose. They just This World Cup just kind of really just proved that referees all over the world are just as shit as the ones in England yeah exactly exactly okay um, Nina coming to you what, how do you feel uh, like aside from the magic spray that they were all using um what do you feel was good about refereeing if anything for this world cup wow um that was quite a rant from the girls uh, I don't think I could add anything more into that and um, I agree with them wholeheartedly again I don't think there was anything overly good in the sense that they were just consistently bad. I don't think the only thing that made up for for the World Cup was it was a highly entertaining one. We had there were pinnacle decisions, some of the bad ones, but not so much where every game sort of consisted of a bad decision, i.e. a result, a result changing decision. And I guess that is the only consolation I can have with the officials and this World Cup. Oh, and another thing that really fucked me off was the overuse of fucking goal line technology. You didn't have it. You've got it now. You don't have to use it every time the keeper makes a save three yards off the line it is just ridiculous it oh my god yeah you could go on about that as well it was just it was shambolic I think the officials were shambolic I think football saved this world cup as a whole and I think again going back to the comments regarding um favoritism with the host nation it just made me sort of hate Brazil also more than what I usually do because they were protected it's like Man United all over again. It was that sort of venom with them and, you know, that sort of anger and sort of rooting for any team but Brazil, that sort of attitude 
was sort of going through, I think, most of our heads because of how well protected they were with the referees. It was like watching United at Old Trafford against Southampton or something. I don't know. Exactly. I agree with you there. And I think that's exactly why I was so against Brazil. It's like, oh, it's just, oh, it was frustrating to watch. It's like making me my blood boil even just talking about it now. But um, there was one other thing that really, really pissed me off this World Cup, right? So um, a lot of you would have seen, like, you know, all these pretty, lovely ladies in the crowd. And it has become a talking point of this World Cup. And annoyingly, it's completely plastered all over Lad Bible, focusing on these women in the crowd. And it's like, it's like a novelty. Oh, look, there's girls looking, watching football, looking pretty. And... For me, if an outsider looking at at this game and just seeing all these crowd shots would think the the whole stadium was just full of women. I, I don't know how you guys felt about that. I mean, don't get me wrong; it's not it's not jealousy or it's not anything like that. They're all beautiful women, but why do they need to be portrayed as like a uh, what, what what do you call it? Like like an icon at this match, and you know, like oh, they're all sitting, looking pretty, watching football. No. Girls can like football, but they don't have to sit and be subjected to all of that. that that's my opinion anyway. Ray, coming to you about on that. Yeah, the casual sexism during the World Cup was, to me, really striking. Without wishing to sound like some mad bra burner, I really objected to... I objected to two things about the things that the cameramen did. I objected to the fact that they seem to focus on many blonde, large-breasted bints who were in the crowd wearing <clears throat> very tight um, tops. There was one particular girl in the first Brazil match who had her boobs falling out of her top. And the next day on Twitter, there was nothing but this dreadful collage of the reason why Marcelo got distracted was because this girl had her boobs spilling out of her top. Now... I don't understand why that kind of thing gets focused on. I suppose it's a pair of bare breasts in public. Ooh, wow. But, yeah, there was an awful lot of sexism in terms of the camera angles that the cameramen seemed to opt for. The other thing that pissed me off about uh, the matches in the stadiums in Brazil wasn't from a sexism point of view. It was more from a racism point of view. I saw very few black faces in the crowds. And anyone would have thought that Brazil was a nation of very pale-skinned people when it completely isn't. Um, So that was another thing, but that's by the by. So there was the casual sexism on TV and then the casual sexism on Twitter and other social media channels where all of these male football supporters were plastering social media with large-breasted blondes and brunettes who were at these various matches. And I understand that it's part of the whole thing for male football supporters but there are an awful lot of female football supporters who do kind of take umbrage at that kind of attitude and I certainly did I don't mean to sound so po-faced like I said I understand that it's part of it for male football supporters but for female football supporters I find I think a lot of female football supporters find it quite demeaning yeah exactly I feel like um I agree with you. Okay, it's part of that whole lad culture, right? I I get that. But it's like constantly, once or twice was fine. But this was like every single game. And I just thought I just kind of had enough of it, to be honest. And then like, I don't know if you guys saw, but um, 
that spray and all these like little pictures going around on Twitter, like, oh, I'm going to banish my girlfriend from the TV by using the magic spray. She can stay behind that line or like, you know, some there was some advert saying, oh, have you become a football widow? No, actually, there's girls who fucking like watching football. OK, well, it's I'm glad you brought up that football widow thing as well, because there were adverts on TV about it. We were watching it via VPN. So we saw the British um, adverts in the commercial breaks between matches and things. But there was a particular chain of, of gyms in the UK that were offering 90 minute class packages to women who were football widows and assuming that all women were necessarily going to be football widows uh no why assume that it's a massive assumption and that's also insulting yeah completely i completely agree with you there it's it's just big insults flying around there i think people need to understand that it's not just men that like football um anyway nina coming to you how do you how do you feel about all of this that was being portrayed? I completely agree with you girls. And I also noticed as the World Cup progressed into its latter stages, the girls just got more and more sluttier. It was like five minutes of fame for them. It was almost like, this is my time. I'm going to wear the tightest little top or have my tits hanging out as it, you know, as you say, um, to get that five minutes of fame. And you know what I find amusing? When a girl sort of comments about a footballer being attractive and you get, you know, your your sort of, um, your average male lad sort of commenting, saying, oh, typical girl likes football because of ex-footballer. But yet they're doing the exact same by glorifying these women. And I just find it all very um, hypocritical and, you know, again, going back to the whole, um, the, the images on Twitter about women banished behind sprays. I mean, I've been getting recently a lot of these sort of comments like, um, you really know your stuff for a woman. No, I know my stuff because I know my stuff. My gender has nothing to do with it. And, you know, I follow, and, and I'm sure you girls do too, I follow lots of female footy fans who are so on point with everything that they say and you know actually make more sense than most men so my advice to these men who have these sort of cavemen sort of um views about women is go and follow real football fans who are female and who absolutely love it and are passionate about football and stop reading tweets from rihanna end of oh gosh you, uh, rihanna I, I think she supported every single fucking team this world cup I was coming home today and I saw at the front page of the Evening Standard and it said, Rihanna supports Germany and her pictures with all of um, all of the German players. And I'm just like... Absolutely. Oh. I completely agree with you. You know what she reminds me of? She reminds me of a five-year-old boy who is just starting to watch football, can't quite figure out which football team to support or pledge an allegiance to. So she started off every game rooting for both teams. And as the scoreline sort of changed, her allegiance shifted to the winning team. It was so embarrassing. It was yeah, so cringeworthy. Like a pure like glory hunter. And that's all. She's just doing it for the attention and whatever. And it's just like... People like that give girls like us who know their stuff, who are passionate about football, a bad name. Absolutely. And it sh- to be fair, though, I mean, I don't follow her and I know you girls don't as well on Twitter, but she was a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine. 
I did go on and see what insightful tweets she had to post on Twitter <laughs> because it was just laughable. She, she, you know what? She was an entertainment factor, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I agree. Enzo, come to you on on this whole uh, casual sexism this World Cup. I don't really see what the big deal is, if I'm completely honest. Um, I I don't think it's sexist whatsoever. I, I am a female. Um, I would like to add in case there was any um, question about whether I am or not. Um, I do get it a lot. Are you transgender? You know a lot about football for a girl. Pricks. Anyway, um, so I, I honestly, I, I, I really don't see what the big deal is. I mean, they're beautiful women. They're at a World Cup. The camera doesn't just pan to the women. It, there were many, many clips of young children crying, laughing, older people, older couples in some games, families, people playing drums. So it's not just the women that were there. I think maybe as little as maybe 20 or 30% of all, the, all the, the sort of panning and single shots of people would have been the women. The rest of it was full of other types of people, people dressed like total and utter idiots as well, wigs, the works. I just think it's completely blown out of proportion because of social media, because of people making these memes or memes or whatever you want to call them, collages of women and their tits and they're all painted in different flags. In all fairness, every time I've seen them on Twitter, I've just scrolled past because I, I don't give a fuck if I'm honest with you. Um, it's a woman. She's pretty. Some of these women were completely covered up, but were just strikingly beautiful women. And it was a pleasure seeing such beautiful women from such beautiful countries. And, you know, each country should, you know, celebrate the fact that they've got such beautiful women there. The, the sluttier ones, of course, yeah, they want their five minutes of fame. They've got their five minutes of main fame, sorry. Um, but but who, who cares? I honestly think this has just been blown out of proportion by social media. For example, this this morning I actually read about the girl um, from I think she was in the Belgium game. The Bel yes, the Belgian girl who's actually been signed by L'Oreal uh, because obviously she was appearing in these still images and on the footage of being in the crowd at the Belgium game. Now look at Pamela Anderson, the hottest bombshell of the nineties. Look at how she was discovered. Now there was no social media at that time, but she was discovered in pretty much the exact same way. Uh, I think it was a, a Canadian football game back in probably Vancouver or Toronto, somewhere in Canada. But she came up on the, you know, they have those huge, large screens where they, they sort of pan the camera across. And I think she was wearing some sort of beer T-shirts or something. And literally, she just rose to fame from there. So the camera panned onto her, found her, zoomed in on her. I mean, the next thing you know, she was on the cover of Playboy not too not too long after. So this is without social media getting involved. And they managed to create this massive star out of her just from that image. And I think it's a great thing. So even the girl who got picked at, um, by L'Oreal from the Belgium game, she's got beautiful hair. Why not? You know, I mean, long gone are the days when you're finding models walking into these modelling agencies because they're so tall and skinny and, you know, they don't eat and you see bone and whatever. There are perfectly beautiful women who are in the stands at football games supporting their team and they're getting picked to be models. And I'm pretty sure most of them are just normal girls who are just very, very good looking and they're just there to support their team. This girl travelled from Belgium 
all the way to Brazil to support her team and she got picked by L'Oreal. So it's not really, personally, I don't see that as sexist. I just think it's, I think it's, it's a really, really good platform, number one, to find models. But number two, it's, it's detrimental in one way because of how out of proportion social media can take this and, you know, really start pointing fingers at people and, and the FA, et cetera, saying they're very, very sexist. Personally, I don't think they are. I think it's completely fine what they're doing. But I am going to go back on to the point that Ray made about football widows. That is where I do have a bit of an issue. And I think the stereotype is a lot easier to make and stick to when the fact is that the percentage of the male population that don't watch football in England is probably around the same percentage of the female population that do. In fact, female it's even it's an even smaller percentage of the females that watch football. So when it's such a small percentage, it is very, very easy to make a stereotype. Um, I get it at work. To be fair, when I first started my job a couple of months ago where I work now, um, the lads just sort of wrote me off like, it's a girl, what does she know about football? Then they saw I was a very big Liverpool fan. And now it's got to a point where we're discussing it every single day, transfers, um, who you know, who are we going to get next? You know, every day we're talking about what was on, on the World Cup the night before. And I just think that it's a lot of ignorance from a lot of, a lot of male fans out there that, that brings this. And there's a lot of ignorant men on Twitter and women. And there's a lot of women who, who don't really help the situation either, I suppose. I'm probably going to get really kicked in the face for that one. But to be fair, there are some women out there who do make themselves stupid. I mean, the best tweet by far, I can't remember what the name of the girl was, um, which was, why doesn't the goalie just come out of his net, run all the way to the other end and score the goal if he is the one who's allowed to handle the ball with his hands? Something along those lines. Now, obviously, that girl's attracting comments because she's such a dumbass when it comes to football. But there are genuine fans like us, like Kosha and Nina, you've both said. There are proper female fans on Twitter, famous female fans. We've got, um, can't name, can't really remember their names off the top of my head. But yeah, there are a lot of females out there that know a lot more than men. So the stereotype, yes, it's very easy to sort of say... The World Cup has been incredibly sexist, showing all these scantily clad women. I, for one, didn't really take much notice. I, I just, because I'm such a broody fucker, I just saw the, the children at the World Cup and thought, wow, there's so many gorgeous children in these different countries. I, I want to marry a Brazilian or a Chilean. Yeah, um, fair point that you've made there, um, to be fair. Um, but... I, I never disagreed that they weren't beautiful. They were beautiful, but it's just, you know, seeing the way, again, I think it has been blown out of proportion in social media, and I just think it's kind of uncalled for. Um, I think all of us have probably been subject to the whole, oh, what do you know about football? Why don't you stay at home and, I don't know, watch Kardashians or something sh- stupid like that? No, I'd, I'd rather not do that. Because they're just a bunch of slags, let's face it's it. Just, and just I don't want to watch a bunch of slags. That's <laughs> And, just, <laughs> and just to make a point that, you know, we're not the first people to mention Kardashians on the AI podcast because Dave did it too, where he compared Hulk's ass to Kim Kardashian's. Oh, so just saying. Um, 
he does have a spectacularly large ass, though. He does, though, doesn't he? He does, to be fair. He actually does. Yeah, it's a huge <laughs> ass. It was just, I, I, I only noticed it the once, but it just seemed magnified by this one time that I noticed how enormous his backside was. But there you go. Anyway, that was my tuppence on Hulk's backside. We are just digressing a bit here, but um, yeah, um, you know, going back to what you said, um, I think one, I can't remember who said it, sorry, but um, saying like the typical male view is, you know, we fancy these guys, that's why we watch football. Um, A lot of people don't realise, a lot of of girls that don't watch football often say to me, oh yeah, but don't you think Ronaldo and Beckham are just so good looking? I'm sorry, but... I see them as a Man United player first and a guy second and I can't rate them for that. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's my little um, input there on there. But um, I'm not going to lie. Mean, I worship Louis. I was going to say I worship Louis Suarez and let's face he's, it. He's not exactly the most attractive, is he? No. It, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, what, what I'm going to say, though, is um, I'm not going to say, OK, yeah, you know, all these girls in the crowd and all that. To be fair, we did we did all perv on Alexis Sanchez's legs, didn't we? To be fair. It's because he kept pulling his bloody shorts. Speak off. for yourself. <laughs> well, I think I, I know that I did. I did. I mean, yeah, I did. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, they were they were some them them thighs would would, would rival Beyonce. Let's face it. Yeah, that's what that's why we never saw her there. <laughs> Show competition. Anyway, um, talking about you know we we've got a lack of football now, girls. I don't know what we're going to do um, for the next couple of weeks before the season starts. Um, I tend to find that this is the period where everyone tends to get married, and I'm quite happy with that being the case because. I can't stand it when people try to uh, schedule weddings on the day of certain fixtures. In fact, the first thing I do when the fixture list come out and see where where I've got clashes and try to do the best I can to get out of everything because I hate missing games. Um, how? Like, what are your preparations before the season starts? Um, I'll come to Nina first. Yeah, I'm not awfully superstitious. I don't really have any uh, mad ritual or anything. But um, last season, um, I sort of stopped tweeting about Liverpool ahead of big fixtures and it worked a treat for me. So I think I'm going to stick to that one. Another thing that I do in terms of pre-season is I, I like to watch a lot of old YouTube footage of the previous season to kind of keep me in the loop, keep me in the zone and also to sort of compare as it were, when we sort of kick off the season as to fitness levels, players, um, sort of um, work rate, um, has it dropped, has it improved? I also like to sort of scout out new talent as well. So I'll kind of spend my time wisely watching new players, as it were. But the one thing that I sort of avoid at all costs is um, sort of get all caught up in this sort of uh, transfer window. You know, we tend to we tend to get linked to the world and his wife and every player is apparently linked to us. And to me, that that isn't so great for me because I'm always disappointed because you end up with a wooden spoon. It's It always happens to us. We end up with nothing. So um, I tend to avoid all that. And my caution to most Liverpool fans would be 
Don't believe anything that uh, that an in the know account would tell you, and only believe it when you see this said player on Doctor Zaff's table having a medical, because that's when you know it's true. And um, also, um, just another quick one: I don't think Marco Royce will be joining Liverpool. I'm sorry to say that, but I don't think it's happening. <laughs> Thanks for that, Nina. Like, completely broke my heart. But again, like you, I, I'm I'm the same. I try, I try to stay away from it as much as I can because I feel like it's just uh, just too much to handle. I just can't take all the crap. And again, seeing Zaf and seeing the lean, that's when you know that it's real. Um, yeah. But in terms of uh, superstitions, if any of you listeners out there, which you probably have, have been following Anfield Index for a while and following Gags, of course, you'll know about his heater superstition where he doesn't turn off the heater th- during the games. And you see like everybody tweeting him saying, don't turn off that heater, don't turn off that heater. For myself, I mean, um, whenever I can, most most of the games, I've, I've found that I actually have to wear my Liverpool top. And if I don't... Um, it spells disaster usually. So I just try and make sure that I'm wearing, wearing it. I think there was an occasion where we were playing West Ham and I hadn't worn it. Um, I actually had to go and put it on at half time. Luckily I was at home. Um, yeah. Um, there was, there's another thing as well. I had these uh, Liverpool socks that I tend to wear every time I go to Anfield and I have to wear those as well. I think one time I even wore them when they were wet. Um, They'd just come out of the wash and I was like, I have to wear them. I wore them to Stamford Bridge and uh, we we lost that. Um, so I think I learnt my lesson, keep my socks dry and make sure I'm always wearing my Liverpool top when Liverpool are playing. Um, Enzo, have you got any superstitions like that pre-game? Um, biggest pre-game superstition is I have to kiss me bird, give her a bit of love and... Uh, my bird being my tattoo, that is not a physical female because I don't <laughs> think that way, unfortunately, ladies and, and gentlemen. I also hate that term in, like, <laughs> to a woman as a bird. It just pisses me right off. Anyway. It's me bird. It's me bird on me arm. Um, <laughs> so I have to kiss my, my Liverpool tattoo um, a bit Suarez-esque. Um, I don't do the whole finger thing that he does because that's a bit too weird for me. Um I used to have, and this was from, I think it's like a 1993, um, you used to have the, the, the Premier League book with the stickers and it was the Liverpool logo and it was really shiny and I would have to have that in my wallet on the day. Um, I can't find it. Um, so I think that one's out of the window for now because we've won quite many a games when I've not had that on me. I have to kiss my bird for definite though. Uh, but I can't wear my Liverpool top. Um, every single game I've been to at Anfield, we have won. Except for one that we drew and I was wearing my Liverpool top. So obviously that spells disaster for me. I can't even wear the Liverpool kit. On, on match day at Anfield um, but but that's pretty much it for me it's just me and my tattoo really fair enough um, I know what you mean about the shirt like, I felt like that last, last season that um, it was a winning combination me going to Anfield I think every single game there we won except for the Chelsea game 
I think there must have been something done differently that day. We also have a um, superstition. I don't know, many of you know that I actually travel up with a supporters group and um, there's a wall outside the petrol station just outside the Sandon and we make it a point to go there and touch that wall. If we don't touch that wall, then we know something bad's going to happen during the game. (laughs) Like literally so you'd see like this busload of us coming up from London sitting on that that wall outside the Sandon and that that's our ritual we have to go and get our chips go and get a drink and sit on that wall and um, hopefully after that it's all good and it's going to be a good day for Liverpool. Is it does it have to go in a particular order or if you get your um, chips yeah, so after like, you put them No in? no no it has to be the right way around so like we literally get off the get off the coach so we're walking through Stanley Park walk up to the chippy which is next to um um, next to the Ar- like on Arkles Road, and then yeah, um, after that, head over to like near the Sandon pub and sit down, have our chips, and yeah, then we're good to go. And always head in half an hour before kickoff. That that's our pre-game ritual, as as a club. So, so the next time you're at a game and we win it, no, sorry, if we lose it or draw it, I you know why? Know we d- you yeah, know. you didn't touch the bloody wall, touch the wall. exactly. Exactly. Ray, how about you? Have you got any pre-game superstitions that um, you follow or anything that you do in terms of preparation before Liverpool play? Well, I always, always, always wear a shirt, a Liverpool shirt, if I'm going to the game. Um, I can't think of a single game that I've been to that we've lost, for one, where I haven't, where, where, Hang on, what am, I, what am I even saying? Every time I've been to see Liverpool and we've won, I've been wearing a Liverpool shirt. So I make a point of wearing a Liverpool shirt every single game that I go to. Um, I'm also a bit of a Liverpool FC merchandise whore so that if it's a, if it's a winter's night, I'm wearing a Liverpool beanie, I'm wearing a Liverpool scarf, I'm wearing my Liverpool jacket over my Liverpool shirt. So I, I go all out with my official club branded stuff um so yeah that's what that's what I do for matches if I'm watching at home I tend not to wear the shirt because if I wear the shirt and I'm at home we've usually drawn or lost so my superstition is not to wear the shirt at home which is a weird one but I only wear it if it's a really really big game if we're playing one of the top four yeah. Um, so that's the only time that I'll wear it. If it's a game that I'm especially nervous about, I wear the shirt then as well because it comforts me. Um, I've got a Liverpool tattoo as well. <clears throat> I've got lots of stars on my right leg. So that's always, obviously, it's always with me because it's inked into my skin. But um, I tend to pat that as well before kickoff. But um, that's about it. I don't. I never thought of myself as particularly superstitious, but now that you've asked me the question, I've realised that I do have these little rituals that I tend yeah, to stick to I, from season all to of season. Us do have something like that? I, in fact, in fact, I've even got a Liverpool fleece blanket that I take with me on the coach, and I have to take that every single game, um, along with my scarf. So, like you know, I'm with you there. In fact, with my shirt, I was quite. Um, I wasn't sure whether I should wear it to away games because I went to White Hart Lane and Stamford Bridge, but I wore it along with this bright red body warmer that I have. I just have to be all Liverpooled out before I go to the game. Otherwise, I think there's something wrong. And when there's something wrong, I feel like everything's going to go wrong for Liverpool. But it's weird to think that we have all these superstitions. And obviously, like millions of people must have superstitions like this in the world. And obviously, they don't really affect what's going to happen. But it's just like what you feel. And I think I think it's quite... Um, quite entertaining and good to know that you know all of us are in the same boat with these kind of things 
Um, okay, so um, I just wanted to talk about, now that we've talked about what we do to prepare for the season, we talk about what Liverpool are doing to prepare for the season and um, the transfer window so far. Um, so a lot of people have likened us to uh, doing a Spurs and, you know, spending so much money now. And obviously now that Suarez is practically gone, well, he is gone, um, how we're going to now spend that money. So coming to um, you first again, Ray, actually, um, how do you feel like we're strengthening the squad and who are you looking forward to see play in a Liverpool shirt next season? It's funny that you ask because um, Fids and I were talking about this earlier on. And and I've been talking about it with other Liverpool supporters, talking about it privately. Um, there seems to be... Uh, a, quite a large contingent of Liverpool supporters, particularly on Twitter, who spend a lot of time moaning that we're not signing big names. I don't even know what big names means anymore, but there's a lot of people complaining that we're not signing big names. Now, my perception of the current situation is that Brendan Rodgers and the Transfer Committee and the owners are all singing from the same hymn sheet. That's one. Secondly, I think that their approach to this is much more long term than any of than any of us seems to appreciate. I see a group of people who are looking five years, ten years down the line and strengthening that way, who will be moving out because they're getting older or they're becoming more injury prone who do we bring in and I see them looking for two or three different players in each position and in a way actually it's how Rafa Benitez approached the team as well Rafa's approach was well the team works like a machine so that if you take one piece of the machine out and you put the same piece in i.e a different player the machine will work the same way doesn't always work that way and Rafa never really, never really had the funds to be able to build a team that worked like a, like a machine and the way that he conceptualised it. The way I see the signings that we're making now is that we'll have much more strength and depth and that's what we've been lacking where if a particularly key player has suffered an injury and a particularly long-term injury, we've been particularly weak in that particular position because we just haven't had the backup now we seem to be signing players who have proven ability relatively young who will fit into the team because not only from a playing perspective but also in terms of their mentality they will all form part of this same machine if I can adapt that kind of analogy so I see as investing for the future and not just for next season and that pleases me to be honest I would be particularly worried now that we have 85 86 million pounds pounds not euros the press seem to confuse pounds and euros and they don't report these things properly now that we have in excess of 85 million pounds in the war chest I fucking hate that expression but that's what it is we're going to spend it wisely. And I would be really worried if we threw that money at one particular name. And I get really pissed off with people saying, oh, well, Liverpool are the new Spurs. They're just going to spunk £100 million on three players and, and push their wage bill up and so on and so forth. I don't think we're going to do that. I really just don't see it. So um, I'm quite encouraged by what we're doing. 
Um, I'm very excited, very excited about seeing where Emre Shan fits into the jigsaw. I watched a YouTube video two nights ago to see what he was like, because hand on heart, I'd never heard of him before. Never. Had no idea who he was. They published the pictures of him and my first thought was, oh, bloody hell, he looks a bit like my brother, just with a bit more (laughs) hair product. What I saw on YouTube, and I realised that YouTube videos are very rarely a reflection of what a player's actually like, but you get an idea. You get to form an idea of, of the kind of player that they are. And I'm very excited to see where he fits in because we've got to understand that Stevie G, as fabulous as he is and as much as we love him he's getting on a bit now and we do need to think about the fact that one day he's going to have to step aside and make room for a younger player who has the same kind of abilities and the same kind of qualities and what I saw in Emre Shan was precisely that we have somebody who will be able to take on that kind of role who will be able to pass the ball and have that kind of foresight and insight that Stevie has when he's passing the ball upfield. Um, so that's that's why I'm very, very excited about him. And I'm also excited about Ricky Lambert, actually, because I'm fucking chuffed that he's getting to live his dream out. And he, we will see some fantastic things from him because he is just so fucking happy to be at Liverpool. And that's the kind of player that we need. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you heard, but apparently Ricky Lambert turned up two days early to pre-season training today. And I thought well, something like that is just amazing to see that kind of um, commitment he's given to Liverpool and how happy he is to be there. Um, but coming back to Emery Chan, I think, Nina, because um, obviously you must have uh, watched him quite a bit in the Bundesliga. Um, do you have like some insight on our new player? I sure do, um, Kosha. Um, first of all, let me get the fangirling out of the way. We have signed probably the best Barney in football. His hair is just glorious. Not only that, he looks great in a suit. So from a marketing and merchandising perspective, we've signed the Naomi Campbell of football, as it were. Going back to him as a player... He's um in he's part of the German under twenty one squad. Um, he came from the Frankfurt Youth Academy. Then he joined the Bayern Munich um Youth Academy, and as we all know, um last season he he went off to um Leverkusen. But whilst he was at Bayern Munich the season before, um he played um some of the latter games for Bayern Munich in the Bundesliga because, as you all know, they were contesting a treble. So um Jupp Heynckes sort of give him give him sort of a scope to kind of progress and sort of see how he fits in. Now, in terms of a player, he's very versatile. Um, Last season for Leverkusen, he played um, defensive midfield, attacking midfield, right on on the right flank, on the left flank. He's also played at left back as well. Um, His best position is central midfield. Um, uh, Having said that, um, when he he has played centre-back as well, that was against Hamburg, which they lost. But that was, again, it was due to injuries um, within that specific sort of um, position why he played there. And just to sort of let you girls know, Hamburg were like the worst team in the Bundesliga last season. But that's not a reflection of him. Uh, he played five games um, in the middle of the season at left back. 
he's a hot and cold type of player in that position from what I understand. Some games he's absolutely firing on all cylinders, sometimes not so much. Again, he's very capable as a defensive midfielder, but the beautiful thing about Emery Chan is he can dribble, which is why at central which is why at him playing at central midfield would be his best position. He he's a very intelligent player. You need to remember he's only 20. And at 20, he has this ability of turning a defensive sort of tackle into an attack-minded one. And this is, it's, it's just beautiful. It's, he, he's, he's such an asset. And Brendan Rodgers, obviously, has been watching him a fair bit. And uh, he, he really grew under Sammy Huppia at Leverkusen. You know, he's really, he's quite diverse. He'll be quite an adaptable and versatile player as well for Brendan Rodgers. So if Brendan Rodgers does need him at left back due to injuries, he can play there. So this is all going to be really, really sort of, it's good for us because we've got options. We've got, we've got a player that can sort of move around, do things. I also need to say he, again, he, he's transitional, so he will. He's intelligent. He will turn in a, a defensive sort of challenge, and he will play the killer short pass. He's going to be fabulous. Um, I, I think you already know this, but he is a Champions League winner due to the fact that he was with Bayer, Bayern Munich um, with um, when they won the treble. So he does have Champions League experience. And of course, he played for Leverkusen in the Champions League last season too. One thing I will draw caution to is um, don't expect too much from him because, like I said, he's very young, but expect good things from him in the long run and I think Brendan Rodgers is the right man to nurture him and sort of bring him out of his shell and to sort of settle him in and again just going back to um, the point that um, Ray made about uh, Gerard sort of coming to the end of his career um, to me uh, I think Henderson's going to, going to fit that Gerard role and I kind of see Emre Chan to sit along Henderson and you know these two if we get them ticking they are going to be beautiful together. Absolutely amazing. We might have probably one of the most deadliest sort of central midfield partnerships, not only in the Premier League, but possibly in Europe, because I think we can all agree um, when we signed Jordan Henderson, he had great promise, but what he lacked was confidence. And now the confidence is there. So uh, yes, Liverpool fans and girls be very excited. But like I said, give him time because he is, like I said, he's a little baby. He's only 20, but he's got bags of experience. And I was actually speaking to um, a a Man United-based journalist today about him on Twitter, who's out in Australia. And Again, he watches a lot of Bundesliga. And what he said to me was, and this is a United fan, so remember this. And he was like, I'm quite excited to see Emre Chan in the Premier League. So I think that just speaks volumes in itself. Um, thanks for that, Nina, because I think, you know, a lot of us didn't really have too much apart from these YouTube videos on him. So, like, definitely very, oh, very I- excited to see him. Can I just say one more thing? He has five goals and five assists. And um, last season, he made 33 appearances in Bundesliga. And for a 20-year-old, that is quite astounding. That's fantastic. Yeah, that is. Um, You were talking about Champions League, and you reminded me of this picture that I saw, actually, where um, they were comparing Emre Chan to, obviously, Arsenal getting Alexis Sanchez. And obviously, Emre Chan is eyeing up the Champions League and you've got Alexis Sanchez looking at the FA Cup and some old, like, Arsenal shirts. Obviously, Champions League over there. So, yeah. 
I think we all giggled at that picture as well. It just showed the perspective of the two players. One wants to go shopping in London. The other one wants to be in with the big boys winning Champions Leagues. Exactly, exactly. So I know there's so much to look forward to. But obviously, I can't skip this pod without mentioning one of the biggest things that happened has happened this transfer window. And that is obviously the departure of our beloved Luis Suarez. Um, obviously, that is going to be... I'm, I am. I haven't really showed it, but I am quite upset about it. Obviously, as we would be. Um, but yeah, um, it's a. It's going to be tough. I think life without Luis Suarez potentially. Enzo, I think um, you had a few points to make about Luis Suarez. I, I'm going to be honest. I'm. I'm. I'm I am heartbroken. Uh, the reason being is. Yeah. He's bit people. We know that. It's not the best of reputations to have, but he's never out and out disappointed the team, and there's no reason to hate him. I mean, with with, with Fernando Torres, the way we got over him was by hating him because he moved to a rival club. With Luis Suarez, you know, he's always wanted to play in Spain. We knew he always wanted to play in Spain. <sighs> And he was absolutely phenomenal for us. And it's just going to be, it's just, I know the club is always bigger than the player, yada, yada, yada. But he was just a breath of fresh air. And he's probably the only player that my own lovely Mancunian brothers have sat there and said, I hate you, bastard Liverpool fans. And I hate you, bastard Liverpool, for signing such a talent for such a tiny price and for him to come into your team and do such a great job. Um, so, you know, even they were jealous when we had to. We've now got nothing to make anyone jealous of us yet. Uh, but obviously, you know, it would be great to be a little bit nostalgic, actually, looking at Because, I mean, while he was with us, he did, up, you know, he did fantastic for us. You know, we, we've talked about his excellence, but what do the numbers actually say for Luis Suarez? So he's gone now, um, but we can we can have a look at just how much of an asset he was for us. So the stats that I've looked at being the stats bitch on this pod, um, minus a calculator, the, you know, he's shown major improvements in terms of goal scoring and clear-cut chances, um, clear-cut chance creativity actually under Rodgers, because if you remember, he did have his 18 months under King Kenny, um, and then, you know, he's had two years under Brendan Rodgers. So under Kenny, he was scoring sort of every 244 minutes, you know, and that actually improved drastically to every 109 under Rodgers. And, you know, again, under Kenny, he created quick chance to 281, which improved 281 minutes, which then improved to clear quick chance every 160 under Brendan Rodgers. So Brendan does have a massive part to play in this. You know, he's really brought the Luis Suarez, the El Pistolero that we know out of his shell and, you know, scoring, firing on all cylinders and just being the all-round hottest player on the planet, minus the teeth. Um, so there must be an element of Rogers coaching taking effect and maybe a more settled Suarez in England too. So you could argue that he has, you know, has he ever been settled as he has been up to mischief? And also first season in the Premier League always plays a massive part, almost how shit a player is. <laughs> You know, you're always going to be a little bit misfiring in that first season. Um, so he's had time to settle in. He's had time 
to get to know his teammates, gel together with them, and then just really start to build himself up. So, I mean, we've got all these new players joining Liverpool as well. So, so, you know, Rodgers might actually have the same positive impact with them. So at the same time, you can look at players like Coutinho, Sturridge and Henderson and see how they progressed as well over the last few months in year, etc. And you can sort of see that, you know, it is that element of Rodgers' coaching that's really sort of bringing them out onto the open, showing what they are and how great they can be even on the world stage as well. Sturridge especially, I mean... It's great stuff. Luis Suarez was great for us. We've not got him now. We've still got Sturridge. And talking about him, it's lucky that we've actually still got Sturridge. You know, and he's more than actually matched Luis Suarez in terms of goal scoring since arriving. You know, he's had 31 goals, um, 31 Premier League goals, that is, in 37 Premier League starts, which is pretty fucking awesome which also, believe it or not, actually works out to 109 minutes per goal, which is the exact same as Suarez was averaging under Rodgers. So you can see that Sturridge is already matching Suarez in terms of ability and goal scoring. In terms of Sturridge without Suarez, we've had both Sturridge and Suarez uh, together in the league for us, and it's been absolutely mental and they've been smashing it. But without Suarez, funnily enough... Sturridge did just as well. He had nine nine Premier League games in which Suarez was banned. Um, of the nine that he was banned from, sorry, all nine of those, we see Sturridge scoring nine goals. So it's a goal a game. So without Star, without Suarez, just as good. Maybe without Suarez, he could show us that performance again and you know, hopefully we won't miss Luis Suarez as much in the coming season. I think that's a good point that you made because I think I really liked the healthy competition between Suarez and Sturridge as well. I think they were each of them playing together that want to do one better than the other. And and I think it will be a good stage for Sturridge to shine on. And I think he will rise to that challenge with the uh, addition of all of these extra players that we're having. I think, again... I'm quite happy with the Lambert signing as well. I think he'll provide something different to the team. But I just feel the team that we had was kind of built around Suarez. And it, it will like, it will take some time for new players to gel together and work the way they had. Because I think Suarez had become the kind of player that knows exactly... He's, he's five steps ahead of everyone else. So in my opinion, a player of that stature leaving... Um, you can't really replace that. Going back to those games that Suarez played, uh, sorry, that Sturridge played without Luis Suarez being there, nine goals in nine games, it, he really showed up. And we all thought we'll play it safe this season. We're pretty much fucked without Suarez. You know, he's our main man. But no, he was banned for those, the last couple of games in the previous season of the first few, the beginning of the 2013-14 season. And Sturridge really shone in his place. And rather than us thinking, oh, God, we're going to have to draw a couple of these shitty matches, um, we came out on top and we won, you know, and everyone saw the storage that we all know and love. And the other team saw the storage that we all know and love as well. I think it's more sort of the not, not really the question of how do you, do you just replace Suarez, the player is in the goals he scored, but it's more so how do you actually replace the creativity of Suarez? So we've signed Lambert who 
created the third most clear-cut chances last season with 13. But the reality is that Lambert isn't actually going to get the game time that he got at Southampton. Um, so you're looking at it's going to be Sturridge, Sterling, Lalana, Coutinho. Coutinho, who also created 13 clear-cut chances. So it's going to be those guys who are going to have to try and fill that void. Um, so they will also need to up their game as well to replace the 177 chances that Suarez has actually created over the last two years. So those chances that he has created will be missing out on. Maybe even Markovic, who we signed this morning, um, will help with this. However, there aren't many stats available on Markovic at the moment, so unfortunately I can't give you no numbers on that one. In terms of the actual 31 goals that, that Suarez scored, covering those may be an issue. I mean, will Markovic, Lalana, Lambert, Sterling, Coutinho... Allen able to sort of up their game further to chip in to actually cover that loss. You know, it's something we can't actually predict, but the focus will have to be on the team even more this year than the last. So it's all of them working together as a team and sharing out that load that we're going to be missing. I mean, in short, it is going to take front squad to replace anywhere near those goals. I mean, personally, I hope we can go and sign a replacement world-class striker of Suarez's caliber, you know, and at least get 15 to 20 goals in their first season with the rest of the squad sort of chipping in to get the, the rest of the 10 to 15. I mean, that's a much more likely scenario than the current squad trying to cover Suarez's 31 goals. I mean, we've got an abundance of money, so I guess it's a matter of time just to see who Rogers is willing to sign who cover such a big loss. Yeah, I mean, I do have like full faith in Rogers. Um, he's done really well with the with the players that he had uh, last season, and you know we really did exceed a lot of expectations. Going back to your point again at the start of the season without Suarez, it, it again I I agree with you. We did have Sturridge there and. I was the first to dismiss all the all the um, comments from rival fans saying, you know, Liverpool are a one-man team with Suarez. I, I don't think we are, or we were. Um, he did um, add to what we had, but definitely, you know, we have some potential there. And although he will really be missed, um, I think, you know, we can still, we're still going to be great next season. Ray, come to you. I think you had a point to make on Suarez. Yeah, Um one of the things that I noticed midway through last season, possibly the tail end of last season, was the kind of influence that Suarez had had on the younger players. You could see a shift in their style. You could see an increase in their confidence. And you could really see the positive effect of the training sessions between the first squad players. Now, I think that those are lessons that will be carried through and built upon over the course of the coming season. So in that respect, Suarez lives on at, at Melwood because he's clearly had this massive influence on the younger players and particularly Raheem Sterling. I was absolutely amazed by Sterling's performances at the end of last season, comparing his performance, comparing those with his performances at the beginning of the season, where he really could be hit and miss. One game he would be scorching, and the next minute he'd be particularly indifferent in the next game, not the next minute. Um, but you saw an increase in his consistency towards the end of the season and an increase in his versatility, in his skill set. He was a much better rounded player. Now, you can't just put that at Suarez's door. Obviously, he's had an impact 
on on the lad's play and it's a fantastic impact that he's had but I don't the other thing that I don't think we can underestimate is Brendan Rogers's man management skills he particularly with younger players has this uncanny knack for building up their confidence and their self-belief and he's worked wonders with the younger players in the squad he's worked wonders with Jordan Henderson he was another one who blew hot and cold under Kenny since Rogers has come in all we've seen is Henderson's game just go up and up and up and up. I've never seen a player run as many miles over the course of a match as he does. He's everywhere. And I get quite annoyed with people complaining about Jordan Henderson because a little bit like Lucas, he works in the background, so you don't really see what he does. But if he's not there, then you notice that he's not there and we're lacking something. So coming back to what I was saying about Brendan Rodgers and his man management, if he carries on working with the younger players and the older players, but particularly the younger players who are going to be coming up through the ranks, because let's not forget that we've got the likes of Jordan Ibe and other younger players. I'd like to see Tejera coming through this season because he has been fantastic in the reserves and he's just been the kind of creativity that we see in Suarez's game is there in Tejera's game and that is really stunning so to, I'd like to see that come up into the first team with the with the younger players coming through so if Brendan Rodgers starts blooding the youngsters in the first in the first team and managing them the way he seems to manage the younger players I don't think we really need to worry too much about not having Suarez anymore. Maybe I'm being particularly optimistic um, and maybe I'm still basking a little bit in my relief that the deal with Barcelona is done now. I didn't want to see this thing dragging out and I'm glad that it's all been resolved in a civil and and business-like manner. I think that we're going to work around the fact that Suarez isn't in the squad anymore. I don't think we're looking to replace him directly. And I think in that respect, it gives us much more scope for creativity in terms of team lineups, tactics and so on. Yeah, completely agree with you there, Ray. I mean, I'd kind of just accepted that he was going and I didn't want it to be dragged out. I think I accepted it a long, long time ago. Um, that he was going to go and that kind of like helped me with the process so you know um, but going back to your point about how he's been with the younger players it's something that I've mentioned on a few pods before as well I think he's he's been absolutely fantastic influence on the younger players um, kind of like a big brother coach figure especially again like you mentioned with Raheem Sterling and you can just see how much he's improved Um, but Coming to like, now it's the end of Suarez. I think it's just nice to maybe think of a few um, memories, great memories that we've had with Luis Suarez. I think certainly I've been very, very lucky to see him play in a red shirt. Um, Quite possibly, if not the best player that I've seen play at Liverpool. Live, I mean. I think you kind of take for granted, You obviously the camera shows you certain things on TV. But when you see just his movement off the ball as well, he's just absolutely phenomenal and he will be missed. Um, coming to you, uh, Nina, um, what Suarez highlight stick like will really um, stick out for you? 
again, you know, um, I'm with you um, entirely. Um, I loved everything about him, the good, the bad and the ugly. He was just, he was a unique player. Um, we loved him and opposition fans loved, loved to hate him. I think we've lost probably, and I think you'll all agree with me, the best striker there is on the planet, the most intelligent player we had as well. He had this ability to see things and do things that others dare dream. And, you know, again, uh, I think everything was a highlight. But for me in particular, um, the one thing, it, the one goal that really stood out for me um, was the one against Newcastle um, back in 2000 and I think the I think it was November 2012 home game against Newcastle um it was a beautiful goal but I think his first goal the debut against um Stoke it wasn't a great goal it was um it took a massive deflection but we just signed him he just come on Fernando Torres had just left I was raw um I felt like I'd been dumped so it he was like the perfect rebound and the and it was just beautiful it was just we I from that moment I kind of knew and I think most of us knew that we've got a special player here and that's probably one of my most beautiful moments of him his first ever goal and also every hat-trick that he scored against Norwich pretty much it was a seal deal for me yeah I'm glad you mentioned Norwich I don't know if you saw but um I think my brother mentioned to me that Ruddy actually tweeted saying that he deserves a cut of the uh, Suarez transfer fee for that, which was quite funny. But um, yeah, Enzo, coming to you and your favourite Suarez memories at the end of an era. Um, oh, there's just so many. I think really thinking about it, it's just, you know, every time I think about every every match that he's been in there's there's just something he's done in every match that's really sort of that's all ingrained in your memory it made you laugh or made you think oh my god what an excellent player and how did we get him how did we get him for so cheap you know um I think my favorite my favorite memory of Suarez has got to be the turning point in the season for us uh this previous season just gone so Tottenham 5-0 favorite or possibly the best game I watched it was just he so he scored two goals of the five and then he created two of them as well so it pretty much we'll we'll just say he just pretty much scored all five there we'll we'll give him all five points for that um but it was just how he was just running around toying with the Tottenham players that's when you could see just the kind of caliber that Suarez had become. He was up there with Messi. He's up there with Ronaldo. We all sort of knew it. I think the rest of the world saw it in that game. You know, how it was a such, it was cat and mouse. He was really toying with those players, running around them in circles, really messing about with them and then just falling past them. His, his skills are just undeniable. You know, that, clearly my favourite game that has to be. But, I mean... My one memory of Suarez that will always, always stay with me. It's quite a depressing one, to be fair. It's it's Crystal Palace when he knew that we'd pretty much lost the league. And what I saw when he cried on that pitch was he did something that players don't normally do. Players don't cry on the pitch unless it's on the international stage and you're being knocked out, as we have seen in the World Cup or whether it's a final, a cup final, 
Champions League final, Europa final, FA Cup final. He cried like he would cry for his country, for Liverpool. And that just showed to me just how much he clearly loved playing for Liverpool. And I know he cried because he thought, I wanted to be the one who bought the league home. You know, and it, it was his way of saying adios to the world, I suppose. But he he wanted to be the one who went down in, you know, in, in history for bringing the Premier League trophy to Liverpool and then he could have fucked off after. We wouldn't have cared and he wouldn't have cared. But I know for a fact that he thought it was going to be him. He wanted it to be him, but it wasn't. And it just really showed Luis Suarez the man and not just the player. And it was, you know, it really touched the heartstrings that did. Fucking depressing like, I know, but probably one of my favourite moments. Yeah, he is definitely, definitely something out of this world. Uh, Ray, how about you and your favourite Suarez memory? Um, obviously, the hat-tricks against Norwich, which have already been mentioned. And one of the moments that will really stay with me was that really hard-won victory against Fulham last season, where we scored and... He went and got the ball and he just summoned the rest of the squad together. Like, come on, we've got to win this. We need to get on with it. Don't celebrate too long. Fucking get to it. And that really showed me that he was dedicated to this cause that was winning the Premiership. And his influence on the squad then was really apparent too. Not in terms of his goal scoring, but in terms of his personality. Everyone bangs on about language barrier bollocks that day he got his point across and it was thanks to him and thanks to his attitude that we we ground that victory out I I, I remain convinced of that um his tears at Crystal Palace they will always stay with me but in the World Cup the way he comforted Stevie at the end of the England Uruguay game that to me also summed him up because he had won the match for Uruguay, knocked England out. That was a big fuck you to the FA and the rest of England. On a personal level, he'd made his point. But on a human level, he still made the time for his friend, not just his teammate, but his friend, to go over to him and console him at a really horrible moment for Stephen Gerrard. And that, to me, said a lot about the man that he is. He could have spent those minutes gloating and he didn't he took the time to go and embrace his friend and tell him what a fantastic player he is and that says a lot and that will stay with me as well I'm bitter as fuck about him leaving I'll say that now really bitter about it because I'm fucking pissed off at his agent and I'm fucking pissed off as well that he spent two summers agitating for a move when Liverpool were saying to him mate we can give you all the riches we can give you all the success just bear with us no fuck you i'm going to barcelona and i'm fucking pissed off with his father-in-law as well but that's all by the by so yes i am bitter as fuck i'm not bitter about him moving i'm bitter about the way it went it, the way he went about it and i'm really pissed off that perry guardiola is still his agent because that man's an ass hate him hate 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 him anyway that's my rant about suarez so i'm really sad that he's gone I just don't like the way it went. That's no, all. I know. I, know. Um, I, I agree with all of you there. I mean, 
we've had some fantastic memories with Suarez. Seriously, um, he's just been a joy to watch. He's been. I'm proud to say that you know he's been a Liverpool player, um, even throughout all the bad points and everything. His passion is something that shone through completely. He was always passionate to wear that red shirt and get out and play. Give it not even 100, not even 110%, but like 150% every time he was on that pitch. And I think that's the kind of energy that all players should have. Um, and he's just a beautiful genius, should we say. And, you know, it is going to be sad to see him. Sad to see him not in the Premier League anymore. And, yeah, I think we've come to a really sad note now. I think all of us just went through, we've become really emotional that Suarez has actually gone. Oh, well. Anyway, on to bigger and better things, we say. And it's just um, how Liverpool will pick themselves up and move on from this. Um, but, yeah, we have faith and uh, we walk on with hope in our hearts, as they say. All right, girls. Well, that's been a bit of an epic podcast from us today, I think, uh, girls. So thanks a lot, all of you, for taking part today. It's been great, again, as always. I think... Um, we can surely talk, can't we? Seriously. Wow. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say again, um, thank you to everybody that's been listening to our Live Birds podcast. We've been actually overwhelmed with the feedback that we've been getting. And yeah, we're here to stay. We've bullied Gagvin into giving us this uh, little slot. So we are here to stay and we will be back with more. Um, so yeah, um, also... I've just had a quick note from Gags, of course, um, just to say that um, obviously it's been a massive summer for the Anfield Index podcast. As you know, Gags has started off with these international podcasts. And if you haven't listened to them, you really need to. It's fantastic to hear the stories of all these Liverpool supporters all over the globe. So we've had South Africa, Malaysia, Australia, Canada, who've all done amazingly well. So well done to everybody that's been involved in those. And this week's actually a really big week as well on Anfield Index. We've got four podcasts that are coming up. So we've got us to kick off the week today and we're finishing up with a Swedish international pod on Friday so make sure you do download and listen to those and more than that we've really all everyone that's been taking um, part we really really love to receive your feedback from all those listeners there but other than that thanks again for listening we've been the liver birds again for you and we will be back